You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to this Investing Matters podcast. Today, I have the huge privilege of speaking with Alistair Unwin, the Deputy Portfolio Manager of the UK FTSE 250 listed Polar Capital Technology Trust with a market cap of 2.95 billion um, as we record today. And the trust is up 40.6% year to date and is also running a 10 years CAGR of 17.83%. Um, Alistair, welcome to this podcast with me. I just need to say before we start, to qualify your expertise, you've got a first-class honours in history from the University of Cambridge, your CFA chartered holder, and you've got 12 years' experience in the investment industry. So thank you ever so much for sharing your insights with us today. Uh, not at all. My absolute pleasure to be here, Peter. Thank you very much. Now, in this Investing Matters interview, Alistair, I want to start with just laying the groundwork for our investors that you are one, you know, amongst your team as well of the experts in the artificial side of things regarding um, polar capital holdings and artificial intelligence essentially been driving the outperformance of the polar capital technology fund trust um, year to date, Alistair. So I want to go back a little bit and just lay some groundwork here. And I want you to share with me, if you would be so kind, to start sharing your journey from Deloitte in 2005 as a audit associate to being a fund manager at Neptune Investment Manager, concluding up to about November 2018. Just gives us a synopsis of that journey. All of your learnings as well, please. Um, of course. Um, and uh, yes, it's um, it's been a wonderful time. We've been very, very fortunate to be tech investors during this period because it has been, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners will be aware, it has been boom years for tech for all kinds of reasons we can go into. But in terms of my own career, I, I started in audit at Deloitte, um, which I enjoyed, but found it a little bit dry. My my father's an auditor, so I'm I can can sort of be rude about them. But there, uh, and then I moved to um, a company called YouGov, who do political polling straight after university, um, which I enjoyed tremendously, and started to do more work on the data side. And we did some work with Bloomberg, and we did some more financial work, financial markets facing stuff. Um, which I enjoyed very much. And then I made an unusual move um, to one of YouGov's investors from being just an employee of the company to one of their shareholders, um, which is Herald Investment Management, uh, which is run by a lady called Katie Potts, um, who you you, um, may may be aware of is a a legend of the the tech investing game and of the UK investing game. Um, And it was my great privilege to work there for um, five years or so. I then moved to Neptune to launch a, a tech fund, um, which did quite well. And I took over a, a US um, uh, sort of all sector fund, the kind of versus the S&P fund while I was there, but that tended to have a tech weighting. So that did quite well, given how, how well tech was, was doing. Um, I then had a, a brief foray um, at a smaller fund management startup before moving to Polar um, in uh, whenever that was, sort of June 2019. Yeah, so we're up to June 2019 and you um, get, gained the job. Can you just tell us how that came about? Um, obviously, they've been tracking you for, regarding, regarding all the other things that you've done prior to that. Uh, so June 2019, you're a fund manager. You arrive at Polar um, Capital Holdings. 
how did that come about and what were your first sort of role uh, within the company then? So I'd um, so Poly just to set the scene. Polycap Tech is is the largest or one of the largest tech teams in Europe. Um, it, it is one of the, the best place or most sort of we can say that about ourselves. Kind of highly regarded, long standing places doing tech in Europe um, very successfully for for some some period of time. And I knew um, Nick Evans and Ben Rogoff who who managed the franchise at that point. Um, ben managed the trust and, and Nick managed the usage product. And I'd you know done trips with them and sort of got to know them over the years and always been keen to work here, frankly. Um, and eventually an opportunity came up as they were expanding their team. Um, and I came on initially to cover um, software and fintech um, because you know the, the tech space is sort of ever growing in its um, reach and capacity. And they felt they needed more more heads to really do it justice. I guess we've we've had another couple of analysts over the summer. Actually, we think that that's getting even more the case with AI. And um, that, that's when I started here, and it's it's then obviously went straight into COVID, um, which was uh, something of a challenge, particularly in the team you've just joined. But to be honest, given that we spent a lot of time traveling and seeing companies, I mean, we, we were set up on Zoom and Ring Central and things before we before COVID. So for us, it was obviously a big change in, in lots of things, certainly change in, in the investment environment. But practically, it didn't make all that much difference, given we were pretty well set up for remote work already. Brilliant. Now, thank you. You touched on how large um, the Polar Capital fund management team is and the scale of the assets under management there. Um, and the team won best fund management group for the category of 20 billion euros to 100 billion euros category, uh, the Funds Europe Awards uh, this year. So still going strong. Yeah, I mean, Polar Capital was, was founded um, on tech. Uh, on the tech franchise by um, Brian Asher Russell and Tim Woolley, who, who came out of Henderson with with the, the trust as it is, or in its current form, with PCT. And so there's a it's really at the core of of, of Polar. We're about forty odd percent of the assets, I think. And there's there's some other fantastic funds and franchises at Polar as well. But tech has been very much core to what we do. Um, and yeah, it's it's just at, at the heart of the business. Really, we we think having a big team is important um, because it's an enormous space technology and it, it changes very, very, very quickly. It's it's not like looking at some other sectors where it's the same old faces. You know, there are new companies coming to market. Um, I think in 2021, certainly we had tens of investable companies coming to market and you need a big team to really do them justice in our view. The, the challenge to a big team um, is that when small cap tech is not doing as well as mega cap tech or, or very large cap tech, You've got a, a portfolio in PCT's case of sort of 90 to 110 stocks and the marginal stock, if it's a small cap, is less likely to do well than mega caps. And that's been a been a sort of headwind to to having a larger team. But we, we're sort of hopeful we might be past the worst in that. Um, and we can really kind of show what a bigger, well-resourced team can do. Indeed. You've, you've almost covered my question, but I'll, I'll get you to go over it a little bit more here and reiterate some more points. Um, to give us an overview of the... Polar Capital Technology Trust team and also its investment philosophy fleet, please, um, Alistair. Yes, so the team is um, essentially we, we we have three products um, in the team and the trust is is the second largest of them. So we have a usage product that's about five and a bit billion um, dollars. The trust, as you say, is about four. And then we have an artificial intelligence fund as well. Um, which is about 400 um, or 420 million or something like that in, in dollar terms. And 
each of those products has a lead manager. So Nick Evans leads on the, the usage product. Ben Rogoff leads on the, the trust, which I'm the deputy manager on. And Ju Song Zhao leads on the artificial intelligence fund. And then beneath um, that are Fatima Yu and myself, um, who both uh, sort of assist with the management of those. Fatima more on usage, me more on the trust. And then we have five analysts, five full-time um, dedicated analysts beneath that, um, largely split by sector or subsector, I suppose, within the tech space. Um, so, for example, I cover fintech and application software. Fatima covers infrastructure software, cybersecurity software. Um, Paul Johnson covers video gamers and EVs for us, and, and so on and so on. And it, I, we we believe that you need domain expertise um, in technology because you have to get quite detailed. Um, because the the debates around stocks are quite detailed, and and what drives stocks is sector specific and you know obviously rates have a big impact on on some of the, the growthier areas of the market and and the whole market um and valuations as a whole but you really do need to know the detail in tech that they're not equivalent assets like choosing between different regional banks or different insurers where it's on a kind of well-known uh, set of metrics basically tech, tech everything is always up for debate um and tech companies can be very um very good at articulating their story um so you need a kind of healthy degree of skepticism with that but there are also moments where they don't know and you don't know as an investor quite what's going to happen so there are moments where you need something that's much more like a a belief that this company has differentiated technology even if the business model maybe isn't as fully fleshed out as you might want or if there is a potential competitor who you think is going to become a, a big issue but whether it's it's going to be fatal is, is the sort of thing we spend a lot of time focused on Indeed, and then and that and that's proves its point um, this year because after what was a difficult 2022, during which many tech stocks were hit hard, many market commentators and analysts were very pessimistic about the prospects for tech stocks going into 2023. Um, firstly, please would you explain in layman's terms artificial intelligence, followed by generative AI, then inform our global audience what happened in 2023, transformed the fortunes of those very tech companies which uh, analysts were so pessimistic about? Uh, well, if I could take the second one first, if that's all right, because the, the Gen AI is the sort of, or the AI story is the kind of finishing bit of it. Uh, 22 was a very, very challenging year for, for um, well, risk assets generally, but particularly for growth tech equity managers or growth equity managers like, like ourselves. And the primary reason for that was um, the Fed raised um, interest rates significantly. Um, we saw a significant compression in the valuation multiple that investors were willing to pay for long duration assets. So that's assets where a lot of the value is in out way out into the future. Um, it is very sensitive to the interest rate used to discount those future cash flows. So that was a, a big headwind. And we saw something like, if you look to take a Tesla or something like that as a kind of proxy for that, um, valuations were cut by about two thirds. So it was really, really tough. On top of that, coming into 23, uh, everyone knew we were going to have a recession. Um, it was just a question of when and how bad. Um, tech had had a great time during COVID. Um, I mean, everyone at home buying things online, every company needed to get on Zoom and to, and to improve their tech estate, a sort of almost ideal environment for tech. How can it be any better? You've had the sort of top of the tech run and now other sectors are going to do better. And tech's not going to be bad. It's just not going to be that interesting. And so that's how we came into the space. And then this year, what's happened? Firstly, the 
the macroeconomic environment has been better than people thought. Growth has held up better, driven by a, a very strong labor market, a, a resilient consumer, particularly a US consumer, but also in, in Europe as well. And there, there hasn't been a recession. You know, we, this, this global recession that was supposed to exist just, just hasn't turned up. So that's been really the first thing. And, and given how negatively people were viewing growth equities at that time, that's, that's definitely made a big difference. The second bit um, was, you, you'll probably remember in 2022, we were tracking layoffs in the tech sector almost week by week. And there were headlines about Meta's cut 17,000 people and Google's cut 10,000 people. And there was actually a tracker. You could fairly sort of macabre, but you, you could see how, literally how many people were being laid off week by week or day by day. What that meant, of course, is if the macroeconomic environment doesn't deteriorate, all of those companies who've laid people off see the margin benefit over the next year, which is what we've seen in 2023. And you've seen that at the very big companies, but you've also seen it further down the market cap spectrum. So if you take um, software as a service stocks, which are the sort of growthier area, were criticized for never making money, um, they, they took headcap reductions, um, they reined in advertising expenses, they did the things you'd expect to see coming into a downturn that never arrived. Therefore, you've seen their margins increase significantly this year. So we've had kind of better macro, better profits or better profitability for a sector that has been criticized for lack of profitability. We've always been a little bit more sanguine that tech can basically print the margin it wants. It's within its gift to do it. You just have to give up some growth. And then the final bit, which is the most significant, I suppose, from our sector specifically, is the emergence last year, um, November, it was probably two weeks ago a year, last year, um, of generative AI and this extraordinary new technology, um, which we are still in the very infant, infancy of, which we believe is, we and, and the market can, I mean, the, the performance of the stocks this year, as the market is, is of this view to some degree as well, is going to be transformative, um, both for the sector, but actually for, for other sectors outside tech, for, for humanity as a whole, even. Uh, we don't think it's overstating it to, to talk in, in those terms. And what this um, technology is at, at a, a high level is that artificial intelligence is teaching a computer to think and learn like a human. Um, that's that's really it. And what, what that means is that anything that we would normally associate with human intelligence, um, reasoning, um, problem solving, understanding natural language and producing natural language particularly, those things, um, if they could be simulated to a human-like or superhuman level, using um, a computer that is artificial version of human intelligence therefore artificial intelligence and so that's that's how we kind of think of it at a, at a high level and that has been um, transformative because we can suddenly address human knowledge work with tech in a way that we haven't been able to before you know we, we think of um, the tools we use as um, sort of ways of getting our thoughts down on paper or on the screen or, or a spreadsheet to help us do sums faster or produce models or whatever it might be. We're now going to the next generation of this where really generative AI in particular reflects um, our ability to ask computers to do things for us. And I mean computers very broadly, not just PCs, but, but mobile phones and even computers, um, kind of ambient computing. And when you start to think about that, you look back at prior examples of big technological inflections 
for example, um, when the PC came about, the new user interface was the, was the GUI, the graphical user interface. And once we had the GUI with Windows 3 in 1990, the number of PCs explodes, um, the number of use cases you can do with a PC explodes, and we get a software market. And we start to see the networked enterprise and all the things you'll be familiar with from the, from the, through the 90s, that great ICT revolution, as it, as it was called then. Um, that was down to this, or in part, to this new user interface. Same thing happened with the iPhone. There were 300 million smartphones before the iPhone um, in, in the world, but what you could do with them was quite limited. It wasn't that they didn't work, it was just the user interface. You had to scroll through lots of little menus. It, it was um, a small, not very easy to see screen. The iPhone turns up with a touch interface, a new way of just, just sort of prodding the computer to do what you want to. And on, so after that, we then see the emergence of the App Store. We then see the emergence of businesses like Uber, like Airbnb, like um, Facebook. And all of that extraordinary innovation on the top of that new UI, or the new, sorry, the new user interface. Fast forward to generative AI, we have now got a, a user interface that is quite simply our own language. So we can talk to a computer, whether that's by chatting in a chat box like ChatGPT or via um, speaking to a smart speaker, it doesn't really matter. We can now tell a computer in our language, not in, in code, what we want the computer to do for us. You know, do this analysis for me, send this email, summarize this conversation, find me somewhere to go on, on holiday, create me an itinerary. The, the use cases are literally just beginning. But that, um, that inflection point, we think, is very, very much here. And we, we've kind of pivoted the portfolio um, to take advantage of that. Fantastic. Thank you for that full, full reply, Alistair. I really appreciate that. Now, Alistair, what I'd like to do now at this stage, please, is um, to drill down on the specific AI stocks that you and the Polar Capital Technology Trust team have uh, within the portfolio. It's applications and the characteristics that led to them being selected, if that's possible. I'd like to start firstly with um, the sector exposure you have um, to software, which makes up 27.1% at this particular stage um, regarding sector exposure. Could you give us the stocks you've chosen for that particular area and why? Well, we, we have to be quite careful talking about um, specific stocks as a, as a fund manager when we're, by, when we're active in the, st in the stocks um, quite frequently given um, for, for a retail audience. But I think at a, at a high level, the, you're absolutely right, that is our software exposure um, as it sort of appears on our fact sheet. The way we're actually thinking about the portfolio increasingly is not so much in terms of the subsectors, but actually in terms of how each holding relates to AI. Um, and, and where does it fit into that? And, and so the, the way we've we, we went through a process earlier this year that's a sort of ongoing process, looking at well, how does the portfolio reach AI? How are we? What is the best way to invest in this? We think this opportunity is amazing. Next stage, how do you invest in it? And we think that we've got about sixty percent of the portfolio is in um, AI enablers, and that's split into roughly half half into. The cloud computing um, companies, so at the very high level, that's the you know Amazon's AWS and, and Microsoft Azure and, and Google GCP, and then the other half is of that sixty percent is semiconductors. So there is a new computing stack, as it's referred to, which is basically the componentry, the chip, the design tools, the memory, um, all of the, the different aspects that go into that that sits below AI that is different from the computing stack that was used, and it's not not massively different, but the implications for individual stocks, particularly smaller stocks, particularly in markets um, where maybe we haven't had as much exposure in, in recent years, like a Japan or a Taiwan, 
when you move to a new stack, it's all up for grabs again. And so we think that there is some interesting opportunities um, in some of the Japanese small cap areas, for example, in, in companies that we might not have, that might have been too low growth or, or not that interesting for us. If they are a play on or have exposure to changes that happen because of generative AI um, and an AI computing stack, then they become more interesting. Um, and that's where we're spending a lot of our time hunting. Um, the, so that's 60% of the, the portfolio. Another 20 is, we believe, um, in companies that are beneficiaries of AI. And that's to say they are able to generate incremental revenues or improve their competitive position um, using generative AI that they weren't before. Um, so we're now at sort of 80% of the portfolio. There's another 15 and really most of the remainder, which is adopters of AI. Um, and that would be companies uh, in areas like fintech, um, where we have we don't have very much, but but they will be using um, AI. Often have been using machine learning, like pre-generative AI, AI for um, some time. And those companies we don't count as part of our sort of AI exposure, but some people do, and some people like to say how much we've got anyway. So that that tends to be how we think about it. Thank you very much. I, I, I will point out at this stage that we do have institutional listeners on that come to listen to the Investing Matters uh, podcast as well. So that's why I'm, I'm posing these some of these questions. Um, within your um, top 15 holdings, Alistair, um, there are some holdings um, which our listeners, I don't think, will be aware of. Um, and one of those is, is a I would say, a mega cap, really. Um, Arista Networks, 69.7 billion market cap company, whose shares are up 84% here today, which is, which is staggering. Um, so could you tell us what were the characteristics behind that particular stock and what led to that inclusion regarding that one? Because I'm still, it's still remarkable for me that institutions in the UK are not aware of companies of that sort of size, never mind the retail investors. It's, it's a funny one. It's one of the things that's happened over my career is what counts as a small cap has, has changed quite significantly. You know, a billion dollars or below a billion used to be small. That's that's micro now in tech. You know, you need below 10 really is a sort of small cap in, in proper terms because the sector has eaten the profits of other sectors, I, I think, is, is probably the, what, what's happened there. Uh, and it's, it's no surprise. But Arista's, Arista is a good example. So um, Arista make um, switches. Uh, primarily, or an operating system for switches and and switches. So they are a um, a networking um, company, probably the leading cloud independent cloud networking equipment provider. And their big customers are Microsoft and Meta or, or Facebook. Um, and they um, specialize in Ethernet, which is the, one of the networking standards. And really, it's been a it was founded by a group of people out of coming out of Cisco. Um, who very, very smart people, um, many of whom had, had already had successful careers in, in prior companies, um, even before Cisco in some cases. And they wanted to really just rebuild things for a cloud world. Um, and if you think, you know, if we do this again, how would we do it? They really took that kind of um, approach to, to building a networking operating system and then selling switches um, on the back of that. And then they signed up some of these very big cloud customers um, and increasingly, they're going into the enterprise and the campus and, you know, trying to win the other bits of Cisco's business that they haven't won yet. Um, and they've been very successful. And we've, we've been in, been shareholders um, to a varying degree for, for many years now. The, the opportunity for them on the AI side is while the first generation of AI, so we think of the, the training that's happening at the moment, we're training these large language models like GPT-4 that sits beneath ChatGPT, 
um, or Gemini, which has just come out of Google, those will be trained using um, NVIDIA chips and they will be trained using um, generally networking from uh, a company that was called Mellanox, um, which is a standard, which is now part of NVIDIA. So NVIDIA acquired that company a few years ago, so NVIDIA is selling the chips and they're selling them a lot of the networking um, at this time. When we, uh, well, yeah, what a business. Um, and then when we get to um, slightly, probably a couple of years time, the expectation is that generally open standards tend to win over closed. Ethernet is an open standard. Arista and a number of other Ethernet players, including um, Cisco and, and to a lesser degree, Juniper, will have a play um, in AI as you need to connect all the different clusters together. Uh, and that will then be, you know, essentially, the more we're doing with data, the more data you need to move around, the more um, network capacity you'll need. And that, that is ultimately demand for Arista and, and other networking companies' products. Thank you for that. Now, another holding you have, CrowdStrike Holdings, 58 billion dollars behemoth shares actually moved 130% year to date. Now, um, we all hear about these cybersecurity companies. We know we need them. There's lots of stuff going on and it puts um, you know, databases, infrastructures at risk. What, what's so different about CrowdStrike and what they're doing regarding AI that makes them stand out amongst all the, all, most of their peers, should I say? Well, they, along with another company called um... Palo Alto Networks, um, which is an even bigger company, I think they're, um, they're, I think they're the largest, and they are the largest um, cybersecurity uh, independent company. I mean, Microsoft also has a huge cybersecurity business, but you can't see it breaking out because it sits within an even bigger business. Um, it, they've been beneficiaries from um, the consolidation of spend, actually. So typically, the way it has worked is that you get a new cyber threat, um, a new company, or in fact, a series of new companies are funded by venture capitalists to go and solve this threat. They do very well with that. There's a buying cycle, and then they get acquired by one of the bigger companies, often by Cisco, actually, or, or, or similar companies to that. And then um, that, that's sort of the end of it, and the VCs take the money and refund the level. It's been, it's been a great business. Um, increasingly, and as you move to a, an AI world, scale appears to be mattering more because you need to be able to see all the threats in your network. And then when you see a threat um, in one place or in one jurisdiction of one type of threat, you can then roll that out across your um, estate, basically, and protect everyone from it. And that's, so CrowdStrike do next generation endpoint, um, so going after the sort of the old, the old 90s winners in that space. And they have been taking share along with um, Palo Alto um, for for many, many years now. Um, so the, the AI angle on cyber is going to be very, very interesting because one of the unfortunate consequences of this incredible new technology is that the bad guys will adopt it too and the threats will get dramatically more sophisticated or already are getting dramatically more sophisticated have now the good the good news if it is good news it, it is if you're a salesperson at CrowdStrike, is that the tools to defend are getting more sophisticated at the same time um cybersecurity is a sort of has been a an evergreen theme in the portfolio if you like because the threats get bigger and bigger as, as more of companies' own uh, and then non-tech companies' own value is tied up in their data or their IP or their technology. Um, so the need to protect it goes up as well. Um, and as we moved, I mean, CrowdStrike's big success was as we moved to a, a cloud-first world, um, they were better positioned than the on-premise um, incumbents to defend endpoints. And, and that's really been the kind of big need that they've met over the past sort of five or seven years. Uh, but we think 
cyber remains a pretty attractive market. And other stocks have obviously, as you mentioned, had a good run. Um, and they, they've often traded quite expensively, particularly relative to the growth. But it is an area still of secular growth where the larger players are consolidating share. And, and you can see with AI coming that they're, the potential for that to continue, it look, looks reasonable. Thank you. I see. I, I love the, the fact you touched on a very important point there. Um, and I'll just paraphrase what you said as part of it. Um, and I'll, re I'll frame, reframe this question. Could the winner take most revenue and profits trend continue for the Magnificent Seven and the other um, AI um, enablers, do you think? Um, longer than the market naysayers and shortest can remain solvent. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, a good question. Um, we've seen this across, and it actually happens outside of tech as well, but we've seen this phenomenon of, of the strongest getting stronger and, and returns to scale in tech um, and elsewhere, um, just remaining persistent. Um, I mean, until very, very recently, small cap tech is at sort of 20 year lows versus large cap because being subscale, being a point solution is getting harder and harder, um, not easier. And you see it in funny areas like the, the proportion of um, money made by the very largest music artists is going up as a percentage, even as you might think the internet would democratize it. It's It's been a, a um, fascinating phenomenon and it's to do with network effects and it's to do with um, these increasing returns to scale and the productivity growth that can be driven by those superstar companies and the kind of superstar economics, I guess, power law distribution of returns. We haven't seen much evidence of reversion yet, actually. Um, we are, AI is an interesting one here because one of the reason those Magnificent Seven companies have performed well this year is that Yes, they were becoming more profitable. Yes, the macro held up better, but they are also, to a varying degree, pretty well positioned for AI. I mean, if you think to, to be a winner in AI, at least in the early phase, you need lots of data, lots of compute, um, lots of very smart technical people and a means of distributing it, then the Magnificent Seven all look fairly well positioned, actually. Um, and then you know we can debate valuation, but really then it's a... Um, it's hard to argue that AI is necessarily going to be bad for them, um, even even if you wanted to take a sceptical view, given how well positioned they look and you know they have GPUs, they have data, they have proprietary data at a scale that other people don't. If AI is in the business of extracting insights from enormous bodies of data, then you think the companies who have the biggest data and the ability to extract those insights should be well well positioned. The pushback to that, I think, is that when you get one of these tectonic shifts in technology, as with happened with the internet, as happened with um, the mobile phone, probably to a lesser degree in the cloud. Typically, the incumbent doesn't win. And you know, we're maybe familiar with Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma, that's often pointed to as, as a classic, and it's a, it's a brilliant book, and I would recommend it to everyone. Understanding why the incentives for an incumbent to disrupt themselves, if, if that's the right term, are, are not there. Um, and but it's a bit unknown, you know, pointing out exactly how generative AI is going to undo Apple's dominance of the smartphone industry is a speculative exercise at the moment. It doesn't mean it can't happen, but it is a it is a speculative exercise. And, and I, I, what I would say is that the time at which Apple's dominance of the smartphone industry, for example, could be undone would be at one of these inflection points. 
where other people do have a window. Now, now whether whether it's possible and they can execute on it, they can get funded and all the rest of it. But you asked, like, there was a, a company called Humane who have launched a PIN, um, which is a sort of voice-activated um, product that will use be a sort of individual personal assistant. That will potentially be an iPhone killer. I mean, but we're talking, you know, highly speculative. Um, but at least, there, you know, there are maybe the beginnings of more credible disruptors to, to a company like Apple who has just proved phenomenally um, successful at defending that core position or core market position and core share of profits of the industry, actually. Yeah, brilliant. I love that reply. Thank you ever so much for, for that um, insight on that other company as well, Alistair. Now, you, you touched on the valuation side of it. Now, I, I need to ask you this regarding PCT. Uh, what are your selling criteria and discipline for the PCT portfolio in the sense of overvaluations or you see the incumbents lunch being eaten by a new new uh, company coming into the space? So we, um, the, the part of the market we focus on is we do, we do we're very private. Um, so no, nothing, we leave that to VC. It's, it's, it's very low hit rate, very high return. That's not what we do. We don't, we don't think the, the trust structure is, is the right one for that. Um, we also steer very clear of incumbents. Um, which would be, I mean, Cisco doesn't seem to be picking on Cisco today, but like, that would be a company that we've not held for many years. It's not to say it's a bad company necessarily. It's, you know, it's got financial metrics can look fantastic. And many of those companies indeed do look fantastic on financial metrics. We avoid them because it's our contention. And I think it's, it's the evidence backs it up that change in the technology space is non-linear. So when you go from being a winner, as Cisco undoubtedly was for, for many years, to an incumbent, the business doesn't fall apart, but you become much less interesting as a technology investment. Because you are forced to do M&A that carries more risk, you, you are forced to lever up and buy back stock, you're forced to um, become a, a sort of defending your turf rather than going into new markets. And it's really hard to have a second act is the other thing. And very, very few companies have done it. Microsoft is the most notable exception, having had missed mobile and then having done really well in the cloud with Azure and now potentially even even leading in, in AI. So it's not impossible, um, but that's a, a big part of how we how we think about things. So what that means for our sell discipline is if we think that a company is moving from being a disruptor to an incumbent, our sensitivity or our need to hold that company goes down. And that may be that may not be at the point that it's it's just massively expensive because companies can appear expensive, but then grow for a sustained period of time at a higher rate, which means that when you look back in three or four years time, they weren't actually that expensive. I mean, NVIDIA is a good example this year where, where you've just seen enormous earnings upgrades and, and just incredible growth. At the beginning of the year, people pointed at the PE and said it's expensive. And, and you know, if, if you didn't think earnings were going to move, you you were right. But it's it's been... Um, it's kept us out of trouble, actually, um, avoiding uh, avoiding hanging on to companies that are ostensibly fine, but we think are past the best of their growth years and are incumbents. And then we're probably beating a retreat um, is the best way to think about it. So that's how I would frame our sell discipline as opposed to once it gets to this time sales, um, we, we, we always trim it or anything like that because... It's very, I think the, if there's one common theme for our approach, it's the avoidance of hubris um, because this, this sector is 
or it can lead investors to be very hubristic, either in terms of how much they think they know they can price the future, how much they think they can know they can understand or predict the future, or how much the degree to which people can know the right price of an asset. Um, because you've just seen, I mean, even the last three or four years, you've seen what people will pay for a unit of growth or a unit of profitability swing around wildly with, with the moves in rates and the moves in things that are nothing to do with tech. So the hubristic, we think it can be hubristic to say, well, I know that at 10 times earnings, I buy tech stocks and I always sell them at 30 or whatever. That's not really how we think about it at all, actually. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. You, you touched on hubris there. So I'm going to ask this question at, at this point. Um, one always has to look to avoid overconfidence. Therefore, what do you personally see as the greatest risks and challenges to the proliferation of AI? That's a very, very good question. Um, I think the challenge of regulation, the, the necessity of regulation is here. And I, I think there's no world in which this technology is not, is not regulated. Um, how companies, and we, in fact, we saw the EU last week um, gleefully announced that they put out the, the AI Act um, to regulate AI already. Uh, which even by their standards is very, very quick. And then we think we'll probably see other countries, or very likely see other countries follow. How companies deal with that regulation and the approach they take um, is a risk. Um, could that slow things down? Absolutely. You have some unusual risks around governance, as you saw with um, the OpenAI debacle, where um, Sam Altman was sacked and then had another job and then was brought back in, in the space of five days, um, which is pretty good going. Um, and now Microsoft are being investigated for whether that they have control, which I, I think is one thing it doesn't look like they have was control. But anyway, the, the regulatory risk is... one it, of my questions. You've covered yeah. it now. Thank you. <laughs> it is it's real. Um, the regulatory risk is real. So that's, that's an area. Um, another area is that the big breakthrough for AI um, or for generative AI was the foundation model, which is what came out of Google in 2017 uh, in a white paper. And the key stat I think to know is that pre that pre that paper coming out, if you were using non-transformer models, the amount of compute you could use to train them increased about eight times every two years. So quite a lot. After that paper coming out and using techniques like self-attention, the ability to process in parallel, um, and some other innovations, you increase the amount of compute you could use to train by 275 times every two years. So just a massive inflection in the scale of models you could produce, which is why you can train a GPT three and a half on the whole internet rather than just a subsector of it. Why you get to this um, very, very different scale around these emergent properties. You know, they're able to generate and understand natural language. They can generate images. We just move to the next phase, if you like. The risk from a technological perspective, and there's not much evidence this is happening, by the way, would be that that rate of innovation just slows. We just reach some natural frontier where actually the next incremental innovation or the next wave of compute that you're able to use doesn't um, doesn't make as big a difference as the last one. And, and that's that's a point that has to be a possibility. We can't really know that. The other major area of risk to the AI story um, is around Taiwan, and given that ninety three or 4% of leading edge chips are produced in Taiwan. If there was some escalation of hostilities or some issue with production there, I mean, they have water shortages all the time there, for example, that would be probably not fatal for the AI story, but would certainly set it back um, pretty substantially. Thank you for that full reply. I appreciate that. Now, I wanted to just break a little while here briefly and ask you, 
to share with us and our global audience, Alistair, what's your personal investing strategy? How do you go about investing your own wealth um, long-term, your savings and investments? Are you all in regarding polar capital funds and trusts or do you have some diversification elsewhere? Um, I have diversification within Polar, but I don't have very much outside of Polar. So we have, we have some of our pay is held back as deferred compensation, um, and then we're required to invest that in Polar stock or Polar funds. So necessarily, I have a, a lot of that in, in Polar funds. I also own some Polar funds outside of that in my sort of ISA and my son's JISA and that that kind of stuff. Um, because you know, I think I work with the people here, and I think they're phenomenally capable and, and very hardworking. And so to me, that makes sense. We've got enough diversification um, across different products. So we have a healthcare team, an insurance team, and a financial team, and an emerging markets team. So you can see that there's there's enough diversification for there um, for for me there. So that's that's the bulk of it. Brilliant. Thank thank you. Now I, I want to touch on this because I was quite pleased to see this when we were, when I was looking through some of the notes that I, that I was looking for regarding yourself. And um, given the cost of living crisis and food poverty. I'm an ambassador of a charity myself, so I'm thrilled to see, Alistair, that you and Polar Capital Holdings uh, support a food bank. Uh, please can you share a little bit about that, um, the one that you support and what um, support that um, Polar give you regarding that as well? Yeah, so Polar, Polar does a lot on the um, charitable side. We also have a relationship with um, a local um, school, which has been very, very successful. We've, we sponsor some of their students through university. Um, some of them come and work at Polar. It's, it's been something we've put a lot of um, thought and effort into the um, into in the last couple of years. And Polar has a, a really, really nice thing um, every year where members of staff nominate um, particular charities or things that, that are sort of personal to them. And then Polar often allocates, as a committee at Polar, decide whether to allocate money, but they, they allocate um generously to those um, charities, which is uh, sort of the food bank. I'm, my sister's very, very involved with running it. So it's a sort of family affair. And my, we host quiz nights, which my brother is the MC of at the, at the time. So yeah, we do, we do quite a lot with them. And it's, it's um, yeah, a, sh a shame it's required, but it's, it's, uh, it's been something that we've been quite involved in for some time. Fantastic. Um, keep up the good work. I love that. Thank you very much. Now I've got a final question for you, Alistair. Um, and th this is this is one where I, I just want you to just qualify um, the the reasons why it's important to in, in invest long term, essentially. So, launched in 1996, Polar Capital Trust has survived and thrived despite experiencing the dot com boom and bust. 2007, a great financial crisis, and obviously most recently the, the COVID 19 pandemic. Um, Alistair, what do you and the team? See as being the analytic traits and strengths that has led to this enduring success of the PCT Trust, uh, which is currently compounding 10-year CAGR at 17.83%. Um, I think that's testament to the, the people who worked here before me, um, more than anything else, particularly Brian Ashford Russell and Ben Rogoff, who've been the two managers um, since the Trust was in, was in that form. Um, and our approach aims to... Um, I guess, bring the best, actually, of what the benchmark has to offer. So we run it in a benchmark-aware way, um, and that's partly avoiding hubris. You want to tether yourself to a good benchmark, not a bad benchmark. Um, you want good competitors, not bad competitors, um, which I think keeps you, keeps you sharp. And um, I guess a belief in the non-linearity of tech change, the idea that you can only know 
so much and you work really hard to make sure you know as much as you can but there is a limit to what you probably can know particularly around how to value things because that changes over time the importance of a diversification um we, you know we're at 90 to 110 stocks in the trust um that leaves us well diversified things do go wrong and we have um you know we'll have stocks that are down a lot every year but they're normally confined to the portfolio tail if, we, if we're doing our job well and then tethering yourself to a sector that has been able to innovate and, and has actually delivered the growth and the profit. And it's one of the, the pushbacks against the, the dominance of tech in the benchmark of tech's, I don't know, 28, 29% of the S&P. It's about 20 of the profits. Now we can debate whether that's cheap or expensive, but it's it's not, we're not in a situation like 2000 where where we get to sort of two and a half times the market multiple and, and it's it's all a bit untethered from reality and there's no profits and there's no cash flows. It's, it's it's very different. So I think, I think it's all of the, all of those things together and then absolutely loving the space. Um, I mean, this is a wonderful space to invest in. It's been my and the team's great privilege to do that um, and something that we hope to do for, for many years to come. Fantastic reply. Yeah, I can see clearly that, you know, from being a audit associate that you're far more excited in the tech space, um, Alistair. <laughs> that sounds very rude to audit associates, but it's probably, probably not unfair. Oh, that's great. Now, um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you ever so much, um, wherever you are in the world, for listening to this Investing Matters podcast. It's been a privilege speaking with the Deputy Portfolio Manager, Alistair Unwin, um, Fund Manager at uh, Polar Capital Technology Trust. Alistair, thank you ever so much. Love the team. And we'll look forward to speaking with you again and the team in 2024. Thank Wish you very much, Peter. Success. Thank you. Take care. God bless. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.